Today on Security Science, we take a walk down vulnerability lane. Hello, and thank you for joining. I'm Dan Mellinger, and we here at Kind of Security recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary, which was actually last Thursday on December 10th. So we decided to do what we do best and take a data-based and, from what I've seen, pretty rare review of the top vulnerabilities from the past decade. So with me to discuss is actually the first time we've maxed out our Squadcast uh, attendee process with three different guests. Uh, first up is the ghost of risk-based vulnerability management, past, present, and future, co-founder and CTO of Kenna Security, Ed Bellis. What's up, Ed? Hey, Dan. Thank you for having me. And I see I don't even have to uh, change my title randomly in your notes anymore. I, I couldn't help this. It was just too, too good. Uh, <laughs> um Next on the line with us today is the first and likely last gentleman to ever touch our scoring algorithms, Chief Data Scientist for Kenneth Security, Michael Royman. What's up, Michael? Hey, hey. I hope I'm not the last. That's aggressive. Oh, well, I mean, as of today is more yeah. of what I was thinking. At least in this decade that we're covering. Yes, at least in this decade. Um, and then last person on the line, but definitely not least, is our newly minted Director of Security Research, Jerry Gamblin. So, Jerry, we just did the last recording, and he scared the hell out of me, by the way, But um, on that one. <laughs> but we weren't sure if we could say his title yet. So for the first time on the podcast, welcome Director of Research, Jerry. Thank you so much. I'm actually doing a little bit of Cordell Stewart this month and, and still keeping my, my role as Manager of Security until so, so we backfill that role. But yep, it's nice to be here as the director of security for our director of research for the first time. Actually director of both right now. So appreciate it, Jerry, and congrats. It's pretty awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Well, so today, you know, we're kind of taking a look back. So the world of cybersecurity moves really fast. And in fact, there's been <laughs> some major, major breaches and stuff with SolarWinds and FireEye since we even published all of this stuff, but moves fast, crises erupt, security teams react, um, Twitter goes crazy, um, and it all often feels like there's very little time to take a break and kind of look back. And so that's what we're doing today. Um, technically, the scope of what we're looking at is uh, vulnerabilities from CVE, right, MITRE list from 2011 through 2020. I believe the data we pulled ended on 11-22, so November 22nd, right before um, uh, Thanksgiving, right? This last year is kind of when we stopped pulling data. And um, as always, you can find the associated blog and a full kind of infographic webpage on kennaresearch.com. Um, and we'll be referencing that throughout the show. Uh, I wanted to kick off with some fun facts about CVEs for this time period before we begin. So there's roughly about 145,000 CVEs ever reported to MITRE's list since what? I think it was 99, right? Is when it kicked off. So roughly 21 years, 70% of those have been discovered between 2010 and 2020. So half the time represents, you know, vast majority of the vulnerabilities. Not a real surprise, but kind of cool to put that out there. And then I thought this was funny and also not a surprise, but there are already 1,635 CVEs reserved for 2021. So we know at least 2021 is going to have 1,600. <laughs> More likely, that would be a tiny 000. number if that ended up being yeah. the final. It would be the smallest in the decade. Yeah, I'm going to go with 25k by the end of the year. I've actually heard people have stopped reserving because of the CNA process. Like 2018, people used to reserve a block of loans and then do it. Now they're trying to do like just in time production. Oh, Jerry's smiling. We're going to have yeah, a yeah. I think this. I think I saw Jerry's <laughs> eye twitch. Um, <laughs> Nobody mentioned containers. <laughs> so this this is real. They uh, since the CNA process has spun up, which means about 150 entities submit CVEs now instead of five or six, and then uh, MITRE filtering them. They you can reserve a block, and it doesn't have to be sequential. But you also don't have to reserve a block if you don't want to. You can just kind of fire at will. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was on the CNA board uh, recently. And they were saying that like Microsoft is still doing their reservations and has a process that's been going for a while. So the old yep. CNAs, some of the new ones like GitHub are just like, that's okay. Whatever ID you give it is fine. We found a bug. Yeah, got it. And CNA stands for Certificate Naming Authority. So people who are basically have the authority no, to no, submit. No, 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 no. 
What? naming authority. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good correction. And then why Jerry's eyes twitching is he's been tracking um, somebody uh, just, I guess, flooding MITRE with uh, container-based CVs that are of dubious quality and or... Dan, there will be 50,000 CVEs in 2021. I, I would bet that as the over-under number. Wow. Um, this, GitHub has started issuing CVEs for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities in any product, basically. Like, you reported uh, cross-site scripting, you get a CVE. So Wow. Okay, so it sounds like we should do a, uh, a separate podcast on that. I was going to ask you about that. But anyway, uh, we'll get back on topic real quick because I know you guys uh, uh, probably have a hard stop at the top of the hour here. But um, just real quick as well for the uninitiated, what we do here at Kenneth Security is we do a whole bunch of data science and we calculate the uh, risk posed by any given CVE, not kind of the um, technical risk, but overall risk. And we give that a score from zero to 100. So um, uh, low end of the spectrum, no risk, 100 highest risk. And just to give everyone some context, of the roughly 100,000 CVEs between 2011 and 2020, uh, we gave just 171 of those uh, a score of 100. So point. 1.8% of the CVEs reported during that time period-ish. And these represent the worst of the worst. So everything we're talking about, unless we call it out specifically, will be 100 rated in the Kenna um, platform. And Michael, I wanted you to just take a quick aside and give everyone an overview of what does it take to be a 100 rated vulnerability in Kenna platform. Let's back up to 2010. Uh, and talk about what we decided was a highly scored vulnerability. So I think a lot of people in the industry, at least in 2020, everybody thought that the vulnerability score was a combination of its likelihood and its impact. And what we mm-hmm. did at Kenna is we stopped and thought, let's start with the likelihood. Let's just figure out the probability that this vulnerability is going to be used in exploitation. And so we thought about it in a very data-driven way, and I can't take credit for this. This is kind of why Ed hired me to begin with. He was thinking about this from the very beginning of his orbits days. But it was, what's the outcome measure? How do you build a model for scoring a vulnerability algorithmically? And we decided on that outcome measure being, this vulnerability has been used in a successful exploit. So all of a sudden, we sliced down the, I think at that point, it was like 110,000 vulnerabilities or maybe... I think it was like 70,000 in 2010. Uh, we sliced those down to about 500 vulnerabilities because only 1% to 2% are ever used in successful exploitation. And so what makes a vulnerability highly scored in the Kenna world is all about what increases the probability of exploitation. Uh, the most basic example I can give you is if something has a proof of concept exploit, the probability that it's exploited is seven times higher than if it doesn't. A more complicated example is a vulnerability that isn't going to be exploited that release on average has about 3.7 references to it. That's the metadata of the number of links to it in MITRE or NVD. Mm-hmm. One that is exploited has about 5.2. And so that gap in metadata is also an indicator. Um, you know, our bread and butter is looking through all the 3,500 variables we can collect about vulnerabilities and figure out which ones are indicative of risk and some stay stable over time. For example, uh, having a metasploit obviously, is a huge increase in the likelihood of exploitation. And some change. Uh, you know, ransomware didn't really exist in 2013, so the model's changed since then. And I'll, I'll add to that, Michael. There is a bit of an undercurrent of impact kind of built into the model, right? So when we look at things like the distribution of CVSS and the kind of, uh, I guess, above or below the mean uh, that that occurs for any given vulnerability, it's going to consider things like is it an RCE and, and other things, which has some impact related to it. And then obviously we add impact into the actual uh, asset itself. So the, the overall risk meter score is different than the vulnerability score. Yep, yep. I think that separation of church and state was something we decided on early too, where the Keta platform does both likelihood and impact. Yep. But we decided the vulnerability score should be as separated towards likelihood as it can. And then the asset score is the context of that vulnerability is what provides 
the impact. Um, funny story about what Ed was just talking about, the points above average. I remember this clear as day, probably 2012, 2013, we were talking about how do you account for the CVSS score and extract the information that's valuable there? And we looked at the distribution. It was all over the place. Imagine just like spiky mountains as the distribution. But when you look at things above the average and things below the average, they are actually indicative. You know, I think the average CVSS score at the time was like 7.6 and anything above 7.6 was more likely to get exploited than anything below 7.6. But that metric, that points above average metric we came up with because Ed invited me to a fantasy baseball league, I think my first year on the job, and I had seen like one baseball game in person, was reading about the metrics, and they do points above average for a player. And I was like, wait, we can also do points above average for a vulnerability. Let's see what that yields. So so think of it as, for you baseball fans out there, wins above replacement. <laughs> of course, Ed can draw a parallel between Kenna risk scoring and baseball. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And I think what they were saying is um, the Kenna score is not zero to 100, right? So we're looking right here at these CVEs in kind of a vacuum um, and giving them that score. And then in the actual platform, so customers who actually have their data and their like asset criticality, there's a whole other segment of the score that's calculated against this risk score as well to give a different um ultimate score in the kind of platform. So that's the separation of church and state that Michael was talking about. And jumping into the year-by-year kind of overview, so this is technically out of scope, but Jerry was rightfully called this out when we were working on the um, write-up for this, but kind of the... uh, the vulnerability that brought cyber warfare and espionage and intrigue into the mainstream. So CVE 2010-2772, AKA Stuxnet. Jerry, can yes. you just give an overview? We had to mention it. You rightfully called this out. This is the, this is a CVE that turned hackers into spies, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is probably one of the few CVEs that is so narrowly scoped, um, you know, cause it's for, for a PCL system that very few people have, right? Like there's very few need for the average person to have one of these, but it's rated high because it was used in, in spinning up those centrifuges in Iran to, to do the first kind of cyber war action that was widely kind of contributed or to, to a nation state. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on its own, actually, so Stuxnet and the CVE is a relatively low risk score, right? Because uh, like you said, it, it it's a PCL from some Siemens machines that very few people have <laughs> in general. Um, and so the CVE by itself poses very little risk on its own, but to your point, uh, when used in conjunction and very highly targeted by using a couple nation states, as far as we know. I don't think it's ever confirmed, confirmed, but um, it might as well be. Uh, you know, it's used to uh, very high effectiveness from what we can tell. So, yeah, and I that, think I referenced Tom Clancy novels in this one. And that gets very much to this whole risk scoring bit, right? Which is to say uh, what Michael was talking about with with likelihood is it's all about uh, finding the targets of opportunity, which is very different than a targeted attack, which is yep. very much what Stuxnet was about. Awesome. Uh, so much fun. Anyway, so let's jump into 2011. So this is where technically the scope of our uh, research kicked off this time. And I, you know, I would call this more project versus research. It's just kind of us uh, chopping up some numbers in the platform, but this. uh popped up 2011 Columbia University researchers they found uh, a couple RCE vulnerabilities uh, so remote code execution in HP printers so CV 2011 2404 and 4786 um, and they can potentially although this was never vetted in real life we as far as we know no one ever actually like caught fire but they were showing that they could basically turn off the little safety systems and make sure that the printers overheated and kind of fizzled out i will tell you that that working i was working in government at this time when this yep. cve came out and, and it was a big deal because we had a bunch of laser jet 4250s yep. in every office and hp sent out new fusers to to replace all of those that would stop that from happening though it was never proven our help desk spent weeks replacing fusers in every 
in every printer in the capital to stop. That was the first time kind of a CVE had – it was the first IoT CVE yep. that I've ever ever really seen and that like I think that if you thought about it today, it, you would classify it kind of in that way. But nobody talked about IoT in 2011. Yeah, I mean, I think they they still popped up, right? Um, Ed, P2P, I think it was volume five, I want to say. Um, you know, it was these kind of uh, endpoint devices, printers, kind of headless, uh, dumb devices that people rarely update. And we, yeah. we actually saw that, right? They're in the same realm as, you know, like small business routers and, and stuff. It, it right? sounds like Jerry did a much better job than most because I think if I recall in that report, it the mean time to remediate for those types of volumes was well over a year. Oh, yep. I don't know if we patched the, the printer. <laughs> I think that the physical security people were like, hey, I read in the Wall Street Journal, these can catch on fire, replace them. So... So that's what we did. Well, that's also fixing a vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, via hardware. <laughs> uh, jumping into 2012, so this is actually fun. Um, 2012 was a whole lot of Microsoft vulnerabilities. And in particular, um, I just called out uh, the Vupin team. I don't know how you say that. Is it Vupin? It reminds me of Pokemon. So I I'm always really said sure. Vupin, but... It, yeah, that makes that's sense. That's just... It's, me making assumptions. I think it's Vulpix, actually, the fire Pokemon. Yeah, that's that's where I'm <laughs> actually enough. pulling. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so there's a well-known opponent-to-own um, competition where they have kind of uh, zero days, and this year was particularly focused on browsers, right? Uh, browser vulnerabilities were all the rage. Uh, well, I mean probably still today if they weren't as secure as they were. Uh, <laughs> but in this one, I called out a zero day that was an Internet Explorer remote code execution, so 2012-1876. But all in all, Microsoft had 10 vulnerabilities in 2012 um, that were rated 100 out of 100. Um, I think it was roughly half of what we rated for the entire year, and they all enabled RCE. And I think this kind of speaks um, you know, to the early early, you know, part of the decade being really dominated by Microsoft and them really kind of getting this reputation that they've they had early on in the decade for, you know, having a bunch of pretty critical vulnerabilities, especially with how ubiquitous they are. I, I think that if you look at this, um, I, I'm guessing, you know, just remember that in 2013, 2014, Windows Vista came out and in, instituted uh, the first version of UAC. Yep indirect release to, to these RCE bugs, right? Because XP was kind of the Wild West, and then, you know, they introduced UAC around when Vista came out, and it was really locked down, but from this point on, Microsoft gets really better about keeping a secure, uh, helping secure their OS to a point where it's much better than it was with, with XP. Absolutely. Well, even at this time, right, this, this is 2012, which is 10 years after the trustworthy computing memo from Bill Gates. So they've, they've been at it this for roughly 10 years at this point. You know, it's funny. I think Microsoft might might be listening in. Um, I just got a Microsoft auto update notification <laughs> pop, pop up literally right now. It's like, hey, by the way, go patch some stuff real quick. Um, <laughs> that's really, really funny, actually. Um, yeah, I agree. And I would also point out that um, Internet Explorer had the, the interesting piece was people were really focused on looking for these browser-based RCE vulnerabilities, um, particularly in Windows. And UAC, UAC, I think, was pretty notorious um, and draws some parallels to what's happening in like iOS right now and OSX, where they're trying to be very transparent and make users prompt you, hey, this is what's yep. going on. This app is accessing this thing. You need to actually read this notification that's really annoying and enable access every single time, which I find is interesting. Dan, I actually remember, I think, 2016, the Usenix Enigma conference. Uh, the Chrome team was talking about how, as a response to these kinds of attacks, they were like philosophizing as to how many notifications they should give the user and whether or not they should make you accept certificates explicitly. And it was a big deal because the internet was so frictionless back then that nobody wanted to do anything in the name of security to stop user interaction. Oh, it's but, like, oh, go ahead. 
Well, fast forward a year from then, CVSS3 comes out, and CVSS3 includes user interaction as a variable, which these Microsoft vulnerabilities in 2013 were, I think, improperly scored pretty low on CVSS because the user interaction wasn't included in them. It's like uh, the first time anybody ever enables little snitch on their machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. Memories. <laughs> Um, anyway, well, all good points. This, this one's this one's big to me. Like it's the yeah. first time I'm thinking about it, but it's it's the world both in terms of scoring vulnerabilities and in terms of how we build products reacting to the types of vulnerabilities that are out there. User interaction had always been there, but at 2013, 2014 is probably where they start to be heavily exploited, and when we start to think about maybe we should be on a different point of the usability security triad than we have been in the past. Yeah, it, well, it's actually interesting because Jerry and I just did the holiday gifts privacy slash security piece. And one of the big call outs um, that he had early on was that, you know, security can hurt adoption, right? It's It adds friction and generally consumer, especially devices, uh, want to be frictionless, right? They're designed to be on your home networks and all this stuff. Um, but even from a privacy standpoint, like the IO, the recent iOS stuff I bring up because now they're giving you a little indicator that, hey, this app, something on your phone is listening to your uh, mic right now. Something on your phone's recording you right now. Do you want this app to be using GPS or how do you want to do that, right? There's like a hundred more notification and it seems like people today are much more willing to deal yes. with uh, friction, right? And I remember when UAC came out, and especially the gaming community was like, "Dude, this freaking interrupted my CS:GO session!" <laughs> right? Um, people were pissed because you literally, Microsoft's like, "Hey, by the way, do you want this to happen? Do you want this to happen?" And it seemed like it was occurring, you know, every thirty seconds. Yeah. Um, but people seem to be more tolerant of that today. Yeah, or we're training them to click OK, which in <laughs> itself could be a problem. I was just thinking, is this when you started to see the shift from hackers writing codes to do stuff to hackers becoming ransomware slash social engineers? You know, when when these pop ups started happening and they just couldn't run their code, they're like, hey, the easier way to do this is to send an email to somebody asking them to run this code for me. And oh, they just, they actually. Just that's a really good segue into 2013's pick, um, CVE-3906. Um, it was a remote code execution um, bug in TIFF images embedded in Office documents. So to get past the UAC, they were having, you know, they were embedding these kind of flawed images into an Office doc and having people, you know, basically open those. Um, and this one was big, actually. So I found an article for this one um, dating back to, let me let me open it up real quick. Uh, Famita, our friend Famita Rashid, shout out. Uh, November 9th, 2013 on uh, PCMag.com, good old Ziff Davis, um, talking about this Microsoft Zero Day TIFF bug, right? Um, and how users needed to be cautious until a patch was available um, basically a week later. So this is actually an exploited zero day. Um, and Jerry, exactly the strategy you were just talking about. So I'm going to go with yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's always easy to get even the most moral person to open a Excel spreadsheet titled Christmas bonuses. XLSX. <laughs> like, you know, if that's on an open drive that they have access to, they're going, they're going to click on it. Or, you know, 2021 raises, right? Like, mm -hmm. You know, human nature takes over and we click on stuff without thinking. It's how phishing works. Yeah, yeah. Ed, Michael, any thoughts on that one before I, we move on? I would be remiss if I didn't say that right around here from 2013 to 2014 as we transition is where the price of Bitcoin becomes something that people actually care about. And Bitcoin was definitely a enabler of of, of ransomware and was, all that. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. We we've discussed that earlier too, right? That crypto is could be seen as a pretty interesting correlating factor to ransomware being an actual thing, um, which is interesting. Why didn't we call this the 2020 hindsight report? 
I we should have. Well, it's not really a report. This is more just a project, I would say. Yeah. Right? Um, I don't know. Twenty twenty about- ruined that that hindsight joke. Yeah. Just by being twenty twenty, <laughs> the, the number of those jokes just fell right off right around March. It's like yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> We're trying to read the room. Oh man. Uh, um, okay. Well. <laughs> In hindsight, 2014 was uh, the first big year of these kind of named vulnerabilities, right? So branding vulnerabilities. And I say that because this was the year that Shellshock, a.k.a. Bashdoor, the vulnerability so nice they named it twice, um, came, to, <laughs> came to light. Uh, so that's uh, 2014-6271. Um, I also would call out another cool one just because Dune's hit in theaters and HBO Max streaming same day. Thank you, Warner Brothers. Um, in 2021, so Sandworm, that came out, and that actually kind of relevant to today, was one of the first big ones that was associated with Russian cyber espionage. So this time, not Israel and the U.S., Russia. Um, we did it first, right? Um, uh, campaign. So them coming to the mainstream with Sandworm. And then uh, honorable mention, we didn't actually pull this into the top 100 because it got a 96.8 which is pretty damn close, but uh, Heartbleed also came out. So 2014-0160, which was also these kind of celebrity vulnerabilities that people, you know, branded, created icons for, you know. Was uh, Heartbleed the first logoed vulnerability? I think so. It might have been. I can't speak authoritatively to that. I I do very much remember that coming out. And and that was actually one of the big ones where it kind of pointed to some of the early flaws of CVSS, right? Which is to say it it got a really low score, relatively low score in CVSS because it was an information disclosure. It happened to be that that information was possibly all of your sensitive data. Um, But it was an information disclosure, not an RCE or something like that. Yep. It definitely causes a shift in scoring models. One other trend I remember around this time is um, University of Michigan's, was it the Sonar Project? Mm -hmm. People started mass scanning the internet right around 2014 because of, I think, Heartbleed and Shellshock. Shellshock specifically was a, um, maybe a Shodan-led effort, but a lot of people jumped on board with, let's poke everything and see if it's vulnerable to Shellshock. And so if you're doing sensor collection, IDS collection, honeypots, you're seeing tons of shellshock activity. But it was the first time that it was white hat activity creating, shout out to Andrew Morris, gray noise around the internet. <laughs> I was just going to say, enter a few years later. Yeah. Yep. So I think 2014 is right around, well, ZMAP starts to catch on, evolving from NMAP. Folks start to take advantage of it. And this is where you see the birth of all of these kind of scan the whole internet both commercially and in an academic way, creating a ton of different data on the internet, but also, I mean, I'm guessing attackers are doing the same thing, so they're finding targets for opportunity at mass scale. Jerry, you have any thoughts on uh, these kind of celebrity vulnerabilities? No, I I think that Ed's right. These were the first ones that really kind of got their logo and kind of started that. Uh, I remember Shellshock having the the Mario Turtle one kind of float around to begin with, but I, I do think that, that Heartbleed was the first to come out with a website and stuff. Like they pre-launched the website that was like, oh, we got some information here. And it was like Apple style launch, something is coming. Exactly. It was it was hacker <laughs> it was a hacker Apple talk, right? Like mm-hmm. we were all all waiting and then, you know, trying to figure out I remember spending a lot of time that that year trying to figure out what was actually vulnerable and what data you could get and you know, POCs only half working and you know People scanning, like Michael said, really, really starting to, to just try to catch anything they could on the internet. That's that's and, actually and, funny. That and by one the, of the way, earlier ones. yeah, with the introduction of these logoed volumes, it's something that I've always wanted to do, and I think we should uh, work with Scienti on this one. Is uh, look at all of the logoed volumes now because we've got quite a few of them, and see which ones really kind of represent risk versus which ones were more hype than risk. Because I, I think that might sure. be entertaining, if nothing else. Yeah, well, also if there's a correlation between them marketing a vuln and it seeing, you know, activity or exploitation, right? That's like, right. That's if right. you're marketing yeah. more people, uh, both bad and How, how successful is their marketing? Yeah. <laughs> for the bad guys, for the good guys. Uh, by the way, if we anyone listening... We have to do a marketing shout-out. We have to do a marketing shout-out, too, which is Shellshock Squirrel, Ekans, Snake, 
and Heartbleed yeah. Hippo were little beanie babies that Kenna threw out around RSA because I don't think we were big enough to have a booth at that point. But yeah. to me, that is my fondest memory of marketing ever. The game of <laughs> old thanks, Michael. It was before my time. Uh, game of Bones T-shirt. I remember seeing that. Also, if anyone listening has a knows of an authoritative authoritative list of vulnerabilities that have been branded, shoot us a tweet, DM us. Uh, you know, send us an email. Uh, we'd like to see that actually. I'm waiting for the first person to file a trademark for their own name, right? <laughs> Patent pending. That's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, moving into 2015, Adobe Flash. So, Flash has been, and Adobe in general, um, has been permeating in the top 100 throughout this time, by the way, going back. Um, I just, not in the same volume as we saw in 2015. So in 2015, Adobe Flash, in and of itself, not Reader, not any of the other um, uh, you know, programs from Adobe, Flash itself had half of all 100 scored vulnerabilities in 2015. Uh, I, looking back at this and looking at kind of the history, um, it's interesting because I think you could make a case for 2015 and all of these Flash vulnerabilities being the beginning of the end of Flash. Um, so this is where, uh, what, a ton of companies, Chrome started looking at it. Um, Adobe ultimately announced the end of life um, by 2017. Uh, it's going to be unsupported fully, I think, in everything by 2021. January believe, 12, 2021. We're yep. less than a month away. I, less I know than people a month away. Who, are, who are on that countdown to, to the end of Flash being a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 20, 2015 is really when uh, Google started uh, turning off Flash support in browser by default. Um, it, it was kind of the beginning of the end. And I, you know, I personally have fond memories of Flash back in the, you know, Web 1.0 days of it, you know, enabling, you know, hey, videos that can stream online. This is crazy. Um, right. But it was also one of the most insecure and not not to even mention the CPU utilization and all my fans kicking in anytime anything was running. Very now, true. Now Chrome has taken over that. That's true. <laughs> oh, that's that's actually a funny corollary. Any flash stories, Michael? I'm just thinking about how all of that functionality still exists within Chromium OS, right? Yep. So it's much more securely built. They've thought about it, but all of that video streaming functionality is still there. And as soon as it is, well, it is turning off, you see the shift to other browser-based vulnerabilities that are, you know, attempting to reach the same objective. Makes sense. Oh, I should mention this because it's actually pretty relevant today yes, as well. Is. But uh, there's a big mention of the Juniper backdoor. So CV 2015-7755. Uh, so their NetScreen firewalls uh, had a backdoor that could lead to complete compromise of affected systems so uh this was a hard-coded backdoor and i don't did they ever figure out how it got into the software uh let's see that one would be pointing towards what what's the what is the logo that represents china um <laughs> no the bear is russia I, I always get confused panda yeah something panda. like that panda panda yeah. panda panda <laughs> So um, yeah, yeah. Well, good, the good news is that we've we've solved the backdoor problems. So <laughs> those those days are behind <laughs> us. Is this the first backdoor in a security product? I mean, I'm I'm not old timery enough to know, but I it feels it's the first one I remember where it was a backdoor not in some random piece of software, but in a security tool. That's got a CVE. I'm guessing you're right. Yeah. It was the first time something like this popped up into the hundred ranked, right? So there's there's others that possibly could have came in, but I would imagine anything that is uh, a backdoor into say a network appliance, firewall, thing like that would pretty good <laughs> uh, candidate for a hundred rated. Because um, I believe this one, even uh, uh, the U.S. government was kind of like, "Hey, uh, you're probably in trouble already." That this exists. You know right? what? This one in combination with Hardbleed makes me think of another trend that just emerged around 1415. Both of those vulnerabilities, Hardbleed and the Juniper Vuln, were actually on the systems for years before they were disclosed. 
Yep. So it re-kicked up its vulnerability disclosure debate. I remember a really good RAND report about the life of times of zero days. Yep. Um, where they analyzed the time from disclosure to the vulnerability actually existing as a zero day to an exploit coming out for that vulnerability. But before, uh, there was less of a focus on the drift between, you know, the offensive tooling of zero days that nation states are building and private firms are building and them getting into publication as CVEs. Yep. Maybe because there were too many CVEs for us to deal with to begin with that we weren't thinking about that. Um, but what's under the iceberg starts to be something we think about and largely because I think offensive cyber capabilities start to evolve across nations and private companies. And, and I think it's interesting to kind of jump in here since we're just going full cyber espionage here that like <laughs> never go full cyber espionage. If, <laughs> That's if a new you, meme. If you look back like Vault 7 when it came out points back to some Cisco backdoors around yep. the same time as this Juniper thing that never got CVE'd. But you could tell like around this time that that looking at network infrastructure started to become more and more of a trademark of what hackers do and, and what nation states do. Right. Because it be, it's becoming what's on the network, what's on the Internet at that time and what's attackable. The days of people exposing their yeah. actual systems to the Internet is is going away quickly by this point. Yeah, that's uh, Jerry. I mean, you kind of hit on like an overall trend. Uh, I think we saw in this is you sh- shifts from kind of these end user devices, end user RCEs, and more towards uh, software used and open source software used in like infrastructure that kind of underpins you know online work basically. Um, some more of these infrastructure and systems. I also think it's interesting because with NetScreen, I remember now um, after this NetScreen. Uh, CVE was kind of discovered. I think people started actively looking in for backdoors and for holes in these appliances because within a couple years, I think there's what there's the Fortinet one. There's some Cisco ASAs. There's a bunch of different vulnerabilities that um, and backdoors in like firewalls, right? Exact same type of thing that popped out in the following years. Um, so 2017, 2018. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So because to fast forward to today, right, and we're dealing with. Uh, uh, another backdoor that's going on with solar winds, yep. and there isn't a CVE for that one. Uh, certainly not as of time of recording. Um, and there's been a lot of debate as well: is it really a vulnerability? It's basically it's malicious software that's already running as intended on your network or wherever Just you have it. Who intended it to run? Is the yeah, question, right? yeah, exactly. So now you know, did they compromise the build process because of a previous vulnerability, and that's how they got in? Nobody really knows yet um, that I've seen. But, you know, it's, it does raise the question, should that be a CVE? Because we're looking at this Juniper one from several years ago that, that was, and that was simply just a straight-up backdoor. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, this makes me think about the pendulum swing of security. I know uh, our CEO, Kareem, who worked at Juniper, often talks about the swing of security from detect and respond to predict and prevent. Yep. Um, and I'm... Now that I'm looking at these vulnerabilities and the shifts that are happening, I'm reminded of um, talking to Dan Gear and talking about the shift from thin client to thick client being an oscillating pendulum in security. And we're seeing that again where you know Chrome is essentially a thin client that works the same way as Active Directory virtual machine logons, and folks are using Chromebooks as thin clients. That shift is happening because of maybe that's how Moore's law slowly oscillates and progresses upwards in compute power. The cloud is certainly enabling it too. Hmm. That's interesting. And you mentioned Kareem worked at Juniper. But was that during this time? That, uh, well, no. I mean, he joined Almost. us just before this. So <laughs> how long? In, how long was that backdoor in? Uh oh. <laughs> Can I? Should I talk about the Kenna security backdoor, or is that taboo? <laughs> We're going to have to cut that one out. You're funny. You're hilarious, Michael. Um, I do want to be conscious of time because I, I think you guys probably have a hard stop if I remember scheduling this. But um, so 2016, we talked about HP printers and IoT vulnerabilities, and I think now the term IoT existed for CVE 2016 10372. So this is the first hundred rated that has broken 10,000 in a year. Um, the Zyxel modem. So basically. Uh, Ireland's largest uh, ISP, so EIR or AIR, I, don't, I I'm guaranteed not saying that right. Uh, 
I have no idea. But anyway, it's Ireland's largest ISP. Uh, they had a remote code uh, execution vulnerability in modems built for them, right? Um, and so it put a ton of their default users at risk. Um, and we know how often people you know, update their modems, especially people who are using the default Comcast one, right? So it goes back to P2P volume five, right? Which yep. is almost never. Almost never, uh, <laughs> over a year. Um, another notable one is uh, talking about kind of infrastructure and looking at protocols and things like that that kind of underpin this new mode to thin clients or services, right? Being having your content and tooling and everything streamed to you ultimately. But there is an ISC uh, denial of service uh, bug, which a lot of these vulns typically include RCEs, right? Um, a lot of them can also be used for uh, denial of service attacks. This is one of the first ones that's 100 strictly for denial of service, um, just because the ISC uh, is, I mean. This is also when can, we start thinking yeah. about context for scoring. This is when uh, a healthcare denial of service at a hospital is probably way more important than a denial of service on something like a thin client, a Chromebook for somebody who's working in marketing, using it as a day-to-day enterprise employee, because you can actually turn off an essential service by denying it at a hospital. And this is when we start to think about, you know, how we score contextually. I know the folks at DHS CISA were around 2016, 2017, trying to fork CVSS to think contextually. Yep. Uh, makes sense. And I'm going to jump through to 2017 real quick. Um, speaking of cryptocurrency, enabling ransomware, all that fun stuff, Petya started spreading globally on the Microsoft SMB protocol vulnerability. So that was, wow, I remember that day very vividly. So that was fun tracking, you know, stores, POS systems and stuff going down across Europe. Big, big deal. If you don't know about it, um, I mean, you can go find a ton of resources. Also, the infamous Apache Equifax Apache Struts vulnerability was actually reported. Uh, <laughs> I think it's worth calling out that this yeah. is the only AppSec vulnerability on our list. I'm not yeah. sure if it's the only one that scored 100, but this is the first one on on the list. Like yeah, it, this was. So I think there might have been a few that scored 100, but um, this is yeah the first one that we was notable and kind of got as much notoriety as it did. Um, there were actually five other Apache vulnerabilities scored 100 out of 100 in 2017. So if, what, 2015 was the year of Adobe <laughs> Flash? That's, that's also partially because 2017 was the year that CNA started to enter the picture and we're releasing more vulnerabilities. Yes, so very, very true. It's entirely possible that, well, makers of applications are now submitting vulnerabilities, not just a filtering process at MITRE. Uh, and a just little for, something to Equifax yeah. that year as well, which was <laughs> yeah, got a exactly. lot of Apache attention. Yeah, well, exactly. And also, uh, I would note, just to provide some context on Michael's call out, between 2016, there was roughly 65, just under 6,500 CVs submitted. Um, 2017, 14,714 were submitted. So that was a more than 50% jump, right? Um massive increase with the CNAs. So anyway, 2018, another one, Spectre and Meltdown. This one's Those. amazing. Um, I just got done doing the reInvent uh, conference, the AWS reInvent. And yep. in their keynote, Dr. Werner talked about, about these two vulnerabilities in particular that caused AWS to spend $100 million uh, creating their own ARM chip so yep. that they didn't have to deal with this. This spun them up for, for the whole months that this happened because people didn't know if stuff was vulnerable and like it's in the cloud. Could somebody else on my same tenant be be reading my data with this vulnerability? So yep. so this is what's moving all of these big companies uh, and even at some point Apple yeah, to their own chips to their own silicon. I, I think that it's really, really important to call this out as kind of a as a hardware transformation CVE. I have the same way that the Apache vulnerabilities in 2017 kind of changed the way AppSec works. These changed the way that hardware is working moving forward. Yep. And also yep. how people were asking about the security implementations in the cloud, right? It really brought the kind of responsibilities to the forefront because I remember clients asking, hey, am I on my own instance? Yep. 
Well, and that's, I mean... Am I sharing hardware resources, right, specifically because of this? And, and this is one, a big one where context matters a lot, right? When you're talking about it in the cloud, when you're talking about it in VMs, it's very different than your own dedicated hardware. Yeah, and I mean, this one got such a massive... I also remember the disclosure on this one, which Intel, to their credit, found it and notified everyone pretty quickly. Um, and had a nice coordinated response, um, which was pretty amazing to watch, honestly. But um, uh, it didn't really pop them to the top of the risk scoreboard for the year because it was so difficult to actually exploit these, right, in right. in an end-user system. You're not going to do it, right? Um, the, this also highlights the difficulty of writing some vulnerabilities. So this one was a very academic, down-in-the-code research-type vulnerability that relies on the way that the system functions at its core, not all of the vulnerabilities we're talking about are like that. Some are simple coding mistakes that allow somebody to take advantage. Some are clever chains like non-Petya or not-Petya. Yep. But this one was pretty hardcore academic research that ended up making an impact in the vulnerability world. Yeah. And then uh, also of note, uh, we were talking about um, vulnerabilities in open source and kind of these tools that people use. This goes back to a discussion Jerry and I actually had on using uh, open source tools in your application development, right? Um, so there was a couple RCEs found in Drupal, right? Uh CV 2018 7600 and 7602. Uh, another one in Jenkins, right? Um, jQuery and an authentication bypass in libssh. So, um, you know, some vulnerabilities in things that, you know, for me, I've never heard of these tools. I don't code, I don't do web dev, any of that stuff. Looking into them, you know, they're pretty popular components that a lot of companies and or people use in their web development, their websites, their databases, all that fun stuff. So Fast forward two years, and we now have entire companies dedicated to supply chain and component usage. Very, very true. Jerry, any any comments on this one before... We move on. I know. This. I mean, I, I think it's a good call out, but yeah. yeah, those kind of vulnerabilities have become really, really common. WordPress, we don't have any of those on this list, but like, if, if you run any kind of forward-facing internet company, you you deal with WordPress and CSM vulnerability or you know, CMS vulnerabilities all the time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I know. Keeping an eye on the clock here. So, uh, 2019, we tracked this one and flagged it real early. Uh, Blue Keep. So that was kind of the big highlight. 0708 will permanently be fused into my memory for the rest of my life. Um, and uh, we have a really cool write-up on that. So I'll add that to the resources there. And then 2020. Let's, let's, call that, let's call that one out. That's the first one that we actually predicted. That was a big deal. That yeah. The first well, one that we didn't just react to. Yeah, that was... Uh, so we do a full write-up uh, on how we scored that and when it came in. So we actually got pulled into the Kenna system kind of a day before it was actually public through the Microsoft advisory. So we actually scraped a bunch of information and um, we do a, basically a full breakdown and timeline on, you know, within uh, day one, it was a pretty big deal. By day two, we were like, oh, that's, you should watch out. And that's how it popped on the JCRAN's radar as well. Um, dead to me. Uh, and so he's uh, started... Um, uh, doing a breakdown, paying attention to the Voln, and then um, made a prediction, did a whole write-up um, on this one, and uh, it ended up coming true You know, a couple months after the fact. So anyway, uh, I'll link to that write-up just in the interest of time. 2020, similar. So we actually have been following this Microsoft RCE um, 2020-0688 since it came out, basically. So tracking its remediation um, over time since February, and it came out in that massive Patch Tuesday dump. And then the F5 Network's big IP load balancing. So again, uh, another infrastructure piece. Um, so this is CV 2020-5902. So um, that was so risky. So F5 Network's big IP load balancing devices um, that F5 noted in their initial advisory that if you had these devices, you were likely already compromised. Um, so that's fun. And then US CISA, so this was actually a new kind of uh, government entity that tracks this stuff and their head of which Krebs was fired and Ryan all this craziness Krebs? that is very on brand in 2020. <laughs> Krebs got fired. <laughs> Not that Krebs. Um, but CISA followed with their own advisory calling out ongoing attacks in the wild. So, uh, I mean, it, it's very on brand for 2020 in, the, 
that case. But anyway, that's the summation. Guys, any final thoughts? I'll start with you, Ed. I know we're yeah, short on time. Yeah, I mean, so. one of the things we did, and we did a quite a bit of analysis of, of the last 10 years, and it was pretty obvious to me, while the number of CVEs and vulnerabilities just continue to skyrocket, and we'll, we'll jump on Jerry's prediction of 50,000 CVEs in 2021, um, the number that are actually being exploited in the wild is a fairly constant, right? So what that means for you is in terms of patching and remediation and things like that, you're going to have that consistent workload. Uh, but it also means that triage is going to become more and more difficult as the amount of hay you're kind of weeding through to get to these needles, uh, it becomes more difficult. No, I, I 100% agree. And like, I really think that even with the explosion of CNAs, uh, more and more people are going to have to hold them accountable to verifying that the CVEs are actually, uh, you know, are, are actually vulnerable. I had a blog this morning and I quoted something Michael told me a long time ago. Uh, you know, bad data is worse than no data. Um, you know, we'd rather have no data and just have to make educated guess than, than bad CVEs. I think we're seeing a shift from uh, filtering what we care about through the MITRE NVG NIST CVSS process to opening up the floodgates there, generating a lot of noise. And this actually happened with vulnerability scanners too, where in 99 they started scanning for more and more. We got a ton of noise. Now we have to figure out what the signal is. The same problem is happening at the root with the actual CVE data. And so scoring vulnerabilities, figuring out likelihood, correlating to other data is actually becoming more important. And I'm super happy about that from where I sit, but I did not think that that would be how this went. I thought that we would continue to focus on vulnerabilities that were likely to be exploited at the forefront and the problem would shrink. Um, but, you know, data science is easier than it ever has been before and more useful here. Yeah, and I think it's going to be more use, more important going forward if there are 50,000 CVEs in 2021 no one person can can look at all of those or be expected to understand those. So you're going to have to use data science, machine learning, and risk-based vulnerability management to to dig through all of those and to, to identify what's on your network and what you have to have to take care of. Absolutely, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out it. Looking back on things, it does seem like we're making progress. Yeah, <laughs> which is always encouraging. Agreed. I think that's kind of a theme of a lot of our research is. Um, we're actually quantifying that things are getting better in a lot of ways, but they're surfacing new challenges, and that's the way things go. So um, important to look back. Uh, we've almost, knock on wood, made it through 2020. So <laughs> I just wanted to give a shout out and happy holidays for everyone. Thanks, everyone, for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, I think this will probably be the last one of the year. So, um, you know, we look forward to hearing from you all in uh, uh, 2021. Or December 32nd. <laughs> Whichever comes first. <laughs> the end. Game over. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. That was a good one. Mm-hmm.